Dear Father, please reveal yourself to us, Father, in your word tonight. By the mystery of preaching, through the mouth of a man, you reveal yourself to your people. And there is something, Father, about the way you work when someone stands before us. And when the word is proclaimed, preaching, Father, has a role in your purpose within the body that is unique, not equaled in any other way, cannot be replaced. And so, Father, we honor it in this place. We give our ears to it. We give our hearts to you and your word. We assume and expect that you will speak through what is said and not because of what is said. And we ask, Lord, that when you speak to us each according to your will and in your word, that you will cause our ears to hear and our hearts to respond so that we may glorify you in obedience to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the challenges of studying verse by verse through books of Scripture is the challenge of maintaining a big picture view of what you're doing in the text. When you move a verse at a time, more or less, as we try to do here, it's easy to get myopic. That is, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees, as some would say. Focusing on just one thought at a time, like we do, can mean that in general, you overlook the whole story. You start to become only interested in one thought, one little idea. You miss the main point. It's easy to do that. I have to keep reminding myself of that. And I'm telling you this because if you divorce any individual verse from the rest of the Bible, then you're going to make mistakes in interpretation, inevitably. And that's one of the reasons why we do verse-by-verse teaching here, so that we don't just pile into one verse for a weekend, leave, and then go somewhere else the next weekend, and you really didn't know what was going on around it. We want to take it as it was written. So you have to keep the overall narrative in mind in order to understand the details within it. Now I say all this by way of transition, because today we're leaving chapter 10, we're moving into chapter 11, and the things we're going to study in chapter 11 are very different than what we were studying in chapter 10, but they are a direct result of what we were studying in chapter 10. In fact, they lead us into what goes on in chapter 12, and if this is a, a new concept to you, then let me explain 10... 11, 12, they go in order. But you know, it's funny, some don't think that. I've run into Christians who do not realize that the narratives of Scripture were written to be understood in that way. They almost look at the Bible as a book of wisdom, of sayings. It's kind of like the dictionary to them. You know, they would never think to just read the dictionary one page at a time. And yet, that's exactly how the Bible was meant to be understood, in the way it was written. So tonight as we move ahead, what I'm going to help you do and what we're going to continue to do as we move is to connect the dots in Matthew's story. We need to understand why the things that happen at the beginning of 11 are happening, how that relates a little to 10, and ultimately how it gets us into 12. Let's start there. Verse 1 of chapter 11. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or or shall we look for someone else? We'll stop there. So chapter 11 opens with, at least in verse 1, this brief look back to uh, chapter 10. And that gives us an opportunity to review just a little bit of what we were studying in chapter 10. Now, we were in chapter 10 for a number of weeks. You all remember more or less what we were doing there, I'm sure. In a nutshell, chapter 10 was Jesus preparing his disciples to go out and minister in his place, knowing that his death and ascension were not long off. Remember? And I told you that that was all happening in chapter 10 because if we were to look forward a little bit into chapter 12, which is, of course, where we're going, 
In chapter 12, the religious leaders of Israel are going to formally and irrevocably reject Jesus' claim to being their Messiah. It all comes to a head in chapter 12. When they do that, Jesus will withdraw the offer of the kingdom from that generation of Israel. He takes the offer off the table. The opportunity to receive the kingdom in that day is gone for that generation of Israel. And as a result of that withdrawal, he refocuses his earthly ministry from chapter 13 onward in this book to preparing his disciples to carry out the program of the kingdom. Now remember, we've gone through this as well, that the kingdom concept in the Bible goes through four stages. started as a promise to Abraham. It became a proposal to Israel when Jesus came. When they rejected it, it became a program of recruiting citizens for the kingdom. That's what we're doing still today. Ultimately, it will become a place when Jesus returns. Promise, proposal, program, place. We sit in the third of those four right now. Jesus was on the cusp of leaving number two and opening the door for number three. And so he's preparing his disciples to understand that shift. But friends, you need to understand how hard that was for them to consider that the king came and he was rejected. That thought had not entered into anyone's mind. No one saw that coming. So as we reached the end of chapter 10, you saw Jesus preparing the men by warning them. He says, you're going to have trials. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to face these things as you go out conducting the program of the kingdom. They're going to be hated, he said. They're going to be opposed by powerful men, even by their own family members. They're going to be persecuted, harassed, And even in some cases, their lives would be lost, he told them. In the end, he says, they would save many by sharing the faith. Now, that's not a very encouraging way to start a mission, right? That's not the kind of way you encourage people to get going in some new adventure. But what Jesus was doing was helping them understand that though he came in his identity as king, it wasn't going to be universally accepted. Not in his day, not in their day. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us at the end of 10 what came of that big mission that he gave the disciples. Remember, he sent them out. He gave them instructions. He said, go into the neighborhoods, go into the cities of Israel, preach the kingdom is at hand. And he told them all the ways he wanted them to do it. And then the chapter just ended. And so we don't know what happened, right? We don't know. But Luke, thankfully, gives us a little insight on how this went. If you go to chapter 9 of Luke, I'm not going to read it, but if you go there, you'd hear him talking about the outcome of this little mission he gave them. He says, they went to all the cities, as they were told, and they preached the gospel. And as they went, they used those apostolic powers that Jesus commissioned them with so that they could validate their message. And then they came back, and they told Jesus all the things they had done. That's what we learn in Luke. So we still don't have the full answer to our question. What came of that mission, do you think? Well, let's, let's do some supposing. Do you think it resulted in a great revival? Now, because we know the rest of the gospel, we know that doesn't happen. Do you think their Jewish brethren uh, were just running to embrace the message of the kingdom and Jesus as their Messiah? Well, again, the text doesn't tell us, but we know the answer, indirectly anyway. Like all short-term mission trips... That exercise was a lot less about reaching the lost and a lot more about training the disciples. And that's exactly what happened. They went out, they did what they were told, they gained some experience, they came back excited, they told Jesus, look what we did. He patted them on the head and he said, okay, it's a good start. But there's a lot more to do. Now there's a powerful subtext building right now in Matthew's narrative. And that subtext is sort of like a dark cloud that's just gathering on the horizon of this story as we move deeper into it. Because while we can be sure that there were some Jews who received the message, there were some who believed, 
There was some positive response. I can also tell you that, for the most part, Israel did not receive the message of the kingdom. Not from Jesus, not from those apostles. By and large, the nation of Israel did not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah that had arrived and that the kingdom was at hand. And if you think about it for a moment, that reality, as it began to take hold in the minds of those who were following Jesus, his disciples and others, the reality that not everyone was accepting him, in fact, most were not, that became a very troubling concern for them. Because it began to raise doubts. They knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was the fulfillment of the covenants promised to Israel. So they would ask the obvious question, how can Israel reject its own king? That, that doesn't make any sense, right? And yet that's exactly what's happening. And in fact, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see it happening in full force. Meanwhile, Jesus' inability, it seems, to convince Israel that he is who he said he is, starts to raise doubts starts to raise questions. Verse 2, you hear John the Baptist of all people sending a representative to Jesus with a question. Now, John doesn't go himself with this question because as we hear, he's still imprisoned. He was imprisoned by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died around 4 BC and what power he had in Judea was split up among his sons. And they're called tetrarchs. Uh, They were kind of co-regents over the land. And Mark tells us in his gospel that Herod Antipas imprisoned John the Baptist at a certain point because John had the the temerity to tell uh, the king that he was wrong for marrying his brother's wife, which of course he was wrong to do, but you know kings don't like to hear they're wrong. So Herod quickly imprisoned John. Later, he has John beheaded as a gift to his wife's daughter, uh, of all things. So anyway, for now, he's alive, still in the prison. And from prison, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus in the Galilee. And he comes with this question. He says, are you the expected one or should we be waiting for someone else? In other words, this is what he just asked. He asked Jesus to confirm, are you the king? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's appointed to rule our people? Now, that question has puzzled Bible students forever, right? Because we all ask ourselves the same question. How can John doubt Jesus' claims? Isn't this the guy who saw the Holy Spirit descend on him? Isn't this the guy that said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world? Isn't this the guy who was telling everyone else that Jesus was the Messiah? And yet here he is in prison saying, Tell me again, are you the guy? We always kind of marvel at that, right? We worry about that. Well, to answer the question, how could he doubt Jesus? You have this first, this problem of Jesus' unpopularity. That's the first thing you have to understand. That he is unpopular, not just among the people, but of course the religious leaders themselves are hostile to him. And so if Jesus were truly the king, if it was really the time for him to bring the kingdom to Israel, why wasn't the nation readily accepting that truth? That would be the expectation of anyone who understood who who he was. So you have John now languishing in prison, facing almost certain death at some point, and he has to start to wonder, right? He has to start to wonder, did I get this wrong? I mean, this doesn't look like the kingdom. This isn't what I expect from the king, right? I got this other king, Herod Antipas, a false king, imprisoning me while Jesus is running around the Galilee and no one's listening to him. Now that starts to raise concerns. Maybe he isn't the king. Maybe he isn't the one who's appointed to rule over Israel. On the other hand, what did John see? John had seen Jesus in the water, come up out of the water, see a dove descend on him as an epiphany, basically. They would technically call it a theophany, a visible image of God descending on him. And then remember what else happened at that moment? Remember God from heaven spoke 
this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So, I mean, John doesn't forget that. He knows he saw that. So, I mean, in fact, later he tells his own disciples, there he is, right? The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So how can John believe those things from that moment and then sit in a prison at a later moment and say, are you the expected one? Well, you find your answer from an understanding of two things. Some teaching from Jewish history and the circumstances of this day. Let's start with the circumstances. Uh, the teaching, rather, of this day. In Jesus' day, rabbis in Israel were teaching that as God brought this age to a close and as the kingdom was arriving, there would be messengers who would appear to Israel. Based on the prophecies of Scripture, they said to Israel, you're going to see messengers showing up. And the first of those, they said, would be Elijah, because the prophet Malachi said that Elijah would return from the dead prior to the end of the age. And I'll just read you that from Malachi chapter 4. It says, Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So, the Jews knew that Elijah was supposed to return. Now, back in his day when he was on the earth, Elijah performed eight distinct miracles during his time as a prophet, including raising the dead. And so the rabbi said to Israel, when you see Elijah return, he will do some of those same miracles again. That's how we'll know him. Because if you think about it for a minute, how do you know who's who in that day? There's no pictures. If you don't have a name tag, hi, I'm Elijah. You know, it, it, when a guy comes back and he says he's Elijah, no one knows what he looked like when he was originally on the earth. How would you know? Well, the rabbi said he'll prove his identity by doing the miracles. So they were looking for this return of an Elijah who would do the same kinds of miracles that, by the way, Jesus is doing in some cases. And they said that would be a sign to Israel that the end of the age was upon them. But then the rabbis went back into Scripture and they noticed something else. When they looked at the Scriptures that had to teach about the coming Messiah, Messianic prophecies, in other words, they noticed there was this decidedly two-sided nature to the prophecies about Jesus, about the Messiah. Some passages in the Bible spoke of the Messiah as a suffering servant, the one who would die for the sins of the people of Israel. You find that particularly in Isaiah 53, for example. Let me just read a small passage from Isaiah 53. Verse 4, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us are like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all us to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. That's speaking of Jesus. Speaking of the suffering that Jesus does, and that's where John thinks of Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's what he's referring to. But then the, the rabbis noticed, if you go to other areas of the Scriptures, when they talk about the Messiah, it's very different. They teach about a conquering king, a Messiah who would rule the whole world with a rod of iron. No one could challenge him. You find that, for example, in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 6 says, but as for me, the Father speaking, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
And ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. All right, now, you have these two sides to the Messiah's ministry. And when you look at those two passages, as a rabbi might have done in the days before Jesus in Israel, and they seem to contradict. I mean, you can't do both. You can't rule the world and die for someone's sins. Those, you know, you, those things seemed incompatible with one another. And they searched for an explanation. They had to reconcile those two things because they were both speaking about the Messiah. Eventually, here's what they determined. They determined that in addition to sending Elijah to Israel, the Lord was also going to send not one, but two Messiahs. They determined that there would be a Messiah one and a Messiah two. And the rabbis invented names for these two Messiahs so they could keep them straight in their teaching. The first Messiah they called the prophet. Now the prophet was the one who would come to fulfill all those prophecies about suffering because they reminded, they remembered that prophets usually didn't turn out too well. Prophets usually didn't, you know, they often suffered. So they made the suffering Messiah a prophet in their mind. He was the one who was going to die for Israel's sins, sacrifice like a lamb. And for that reason, and this is interesting, they also called this suffering Messiah the son of Joseph. The son of Joseph. Because they saw his ministry as mirroring the ministry of Joseph. Remember, Joseph had to suffer to save his brothers in the end. The second Messiah they called the Christ. Now, the Christ was the one, that means anointed one, by the way. The Christ was going to be the Messiah that came and reigned and ruled over Israel. He would be the king. He fulfills all those prophecies about rods of iron and about judgment and so on. And the rabbis called the Christ the son of David. Because the son of David, David obviously is the example of a king who rules over all Israel. So you have the son of Joseph, the son of David, the prophet and the Christ. That's Jewish teaching of Jesus' day. Now we know John the Baptist would have grown up hearing that teaching. And we also know from what we see going on in his life elsewhere in the Gospels, he believed it. If you go to John's Gospel, there's a moment in which the Pharisees come to John the Baptist asking who he is. And you read this in John 1, 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, which of the two messiahs did he just say he's not? He's not the king. So they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I am not. And they said, Are you the prophet? And he said, No. Which one is the prophet? It's the first Messiah. They said, are you the second Messiah? No. You Elijah? No. You the first Messiah? No. Well, what are you? And he told them, I'm something altogether different. I'm a fourth one you didn't even know about. But one Isaiah said would come, a reed in the wilderness, making crooked paths straight, announcing the coming Messiah, right? So John answers their questions straight up. You notice that? But what does he not do? He doesn't contradict their thinking. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, guys, you got it all wrong. There's only one Messiah. He just answers the questions, which would seem to indicate that John had the same impression they did. He was simply denying that he's none of the three. I think that's evidence of us knowing that what John understood about the Messiahs is the same thing that the rest of the, the Pharisees were teaching, and that is that there were two Messiahs. But we know, of course, now there were not two Messiahs. There was one Messiah, two arrivals. But that was beyond their understanding in the day. The first time Jesus appears on earth, he comes as the son of Joseph, the Messiah who will come and suffer and die for the sins of the world. But he doesn't stay dead. 
He's resurrected. And in his resurrected life, he comes a second time, as you and I know, and he will come in glory to rule the world in his kingdom. But as we learned in chapter 10, and here's where 10 and 11 come together for us. In chapter 10, we saw Jesus going out, even in his first appearing, and offering the kingdom. Did we not? That would be the prophet offering the kingdom of the Christ. That doesn't make sense in a way, right? He offered it, but we know it's going to be rejected. And because it's being rejected, he moves on. And that's why he has to come a second time. The prophets told Israel in their earlier writing that they would reject their Messiah. They just didn't see it. They didn't understand it. It's just like Joseph again. Remember, Joseph was to rule over his brothers, and his brothers would have none of it. And so his brothers rejected his rule, and as a result of rejecting his rule, it put him into suffering for a time, which ended up being the way God saved Israel in the end. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Though he was rejected the first time in his offer of the kingdom, that rejection made possible his death, which made possible ultimately the saving of Israel in a future day at his second coming. And the saving for you and I as well. One Messiah, two appearings. All right, now, back up for a minute from all of that. Put yourself back in John's place. You're in prison. You're sitting there. And as the text said to us tonight, he's hearing of the works of Christ. He's hearing what's going on out in the Galilee. He knows Jesus is preaching the kingdom. He knows the apostles have gone out preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. So what do you think John is assuming about Jesus? If Jesus is preaching, I'm here to give you the kingdom, which Messiah do you think John assumes Jesus is? He would assume he's the Christ, the son of David, the one who has come to rule. After all, if you're offering a kingdom, it implies you're the king. So, naturally, he assumes Jesus is the king, the second of the two that we've been waiting on. And so he sits here in prison, and he has this dilemma. If Jesus is the king, and the kingdom is at hand, why are people denying him? Why are people rejecting him? Why am I still sitting here in this prison? Maybe I got this wrong. Maybe you're not the second one. Maybe you are the other one. And so in verse 3, he asks the disciples to ask Jesus. Are you the expected one, or will there be someone else? In other words, the expected one refers to Christ, the son of David. The someone else refers to someone else being the Christ. You must be then the prophet. So he's just asking, which of the two are you? He's not saying, are you the Messiah? He knows he's a Messiah. He just doesn't know which one. That's kind of a funny thing to watch, isn't it? There's something, to me anyway, reassuring about John's confusion. And here's what I mean by that. John knew Christ, knew Jesus well. They're cousins, by the way. And, you know, it's funny. We know from earlier in this book when I taught on the the baptism of John, we know that John grew up with Jesus to some extent because Mary and, and Elizabeth knew each other. But he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah until the day he baptized him. So these guys could grow up together and he doesn't even know he's the Messiah. He doesn't even know his cousin is the Messiah. And now, he doesn't even understand the ministry of the Messiah. He thinks there's two of them. Look, if a prophet can misunderstand Scripture, then certainly we should not be uh, surprised when our own understanding falls short, should we? I take that as some encouragement. I do. I take it as encouragement that someone in John's position with all that God was doing in his life, this is a guy that got the Holy Spirit in the womb, okay? And yet, he can be this off and be worried by it. And by the way, for that matter, we should not be too upset with our brothers and sisters when they don't understand the Bible as well as we think they should, should we? I mean, think about that for a minute. 
What exactly is the standard? Who's supposed to know the most? And what does it mean if someone knows something more than someone else? It means nothing. I mean, it's good to know more. It's good to be maturing in your knowledge of Scripture. I'm not saying it isn't. What I'm saying, though, is this is not a contest. It's not a test of who knows more. John's not being chastised by Jesus here for what he didn't understand, and nor would anyone in the church be thinking that way of of another person. Do you know how common it is to misunderstand Scripture? Do you know how many people don't understand Scripture perfectly? All of you. Including me. Right? All of us. All of us are wrong somewhere. I like to tell people, I'm wrong about the Bible somewhere, I just don't know where. And it sounds like a joke, but I'm serious. If I knew where I was wrong, I would fix it. And obviously, in time, I do figure those things out, hopefully. But what I'm saying is we're all like that. We all think we know it. And then we find out we're wrong later. The thing is, that's why teachable hearts are so important. Because the moment you think you know the Bible, you stop listening. We all are constantly learning the Bible. That's the whole point. But what I'm getting at is the Bible is, by its nature, outside our understanding. Apart, apart from God's revelation. Apart from what he wills us to know. What he allows us to know. And if I want to show you just how hard it can be to understand the Bible and how normal that is, let me give you the best example I can give you out of the Bible itself. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, here's what Peter writes. He says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do all the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. You know what I love about that statement from Peter? Two things. First, you notice in referring to Paul's writings, Peter calls it scripture. Now here's Peter and Paul still alive, and Peter recognized in his own day that what Paul was writing was scripture. So don't let anybody tell you that later men came along and decided what was Scripture. The apostles, who are the New Testament prophets, they knew what they were doing. They knew they had been commissioned. They knew they had the power of God to do it. And they knew each other was doing it. But then the second thing I love is Peter says, you know, the stuff that guy's writing, I don't understand it. (laughs) Look, if Peter cannot understand Paul, I don't feel so bad when I don't. Right? That's what we're learning here as we watch John interact with Jesus through his disciples. Misunderstanding Scripture, or just being ignorant to some aspect of it, is the common experience of believers. Now, each of us knows something, and each of us are ignorant of certain things, and some of us are wrong about some things, all of us are wrong about some things probably. Knowing that means we cannot make knowledge of Scripture a litmus test for fellowship. Hear me? We cannot make knowledge of Scripture or even, I would add, agreement in Scripture a litmus test for fellowship. Now, what it might be is a test for leadership or for teaching opportunities just for the sake of preventing confusion within the body. But it cannot be a test for fellowship. We cannot say that because we disagree about something in the Bible, we can't get along. That is just immaturity. That is not biblical mindset. What we're supposed to do in the Bible and in Scripture and in church is hope for a rising tide that lifts all boats. You ever heard that phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats? That is, you want in church to cultivate an atmosphere 
in which everyone appreciates and values the study of Scripture, while at the same time understanding there's a lot we all don't know. But because we cultivate that atmosphere, that interest, that, that attitude, we expect that over time that rising tide is going to lift every boat in the room, so to speak. Now, if somebody in here has a lot more experience than someone else in study, they start at a different point. But we still rise together. And maybe the slower boat catches up over time. Who knows? But the point is, we don't sit there and worry about this. We worry about whether we're rising. That's the point. I want you to look at Jesus' answer. John had this misguided question, right? He came at him saying, which Christ are you? Have you ever had someone do that, by the way? They ask a question that you know, man, you are so off. I don't even know where to start in answering your question. Because I need to fix like five things to even answer your question because you're so far off the mark. As a Bible teacher, I get that all the time. I get people who have this, they come at it from like over here, and you're like, well, how'd you get over there in the first place? You've got to be over here. Then I... Jesus doesn't have four hours to explain to John's disciples, all right, let's back up. There's not two Messiahs. No, he, but look what he does. He actually gives John both the answer to his question and he corrects his misguided understanding of the Messiah's ministry. He does it all in two sentences. Jesus says in verse 4, Jesus answered them and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. All right, so first, here's what Jesus just did. Uh, Every time I see this, I love this. He tells John's disciples, just go back and tell him what you see and hear me doing. But then he gives them six specific things he wants them to mention. And the six things he says are the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, dead raised, and the poor having the gospel preached to them. Now, when you first read that, at first glance, what you hear him doing, or what you might think he's doing, is he's simply saying to John, look, I'm doing all these miracles, these miracles prove my identity. But if that's all he was doing, he's not really answering the question, is he? Because the question was not, are you the Messiah? The question is, which Messiah? And Jesus just said, I'm doing miracles here. So it it appears as though he says, look, you may not have the whole understanding of what's going on here, but just trust me in this. Look, I'm I'm, I'm a deity. You can believe me. And I think that's how people often see his answer. And I've heard people essentially saying that as they look at this text. But that doesn't answer John's question. And Jesus is not ignoring the question. John already knew Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't need to know more about his miracles to know that. He's already seen and heard about them. Then how does Jesus' answer settle the question? Well, he wasn't simply saying, trust me or believe in my power. He was actually identifying which Messiah he was. But wait a minute, which Messiah is Jesus? It's a trick question, right? The only one. Here's what he does. This is where it's, it's something only God could think to do. He quotes from two passages of Isaiah. Now, you wouldn't see that here unless you look closely. In other words, in the text that we read, he actually took verses out of two different places in Isaiah and he stuck them together. And the way the Jews understood the book of Isaiah, is different than the way we understand the book of Isaiah today. Uh, As the rabbis looked at the book of Isaiah, they noted that it is fundamentally different in one half versus the other. There's a distinct division at chapter 40. If you didn't know, there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And 1 through 39 are very different than 40 through 66. By the way, not coincidentally, 
the chapters of Isaiah mirror the books of the Bible. So that the 1 through 39 read like an Old Testament and 40 through 66 read like a New Testament, intentionally as God has designed it. But the rabbis didn't see the New Testament connection, obviously. What they did see was that division. It was so pronounced that even still to today, uh, rabbis will refer to 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. Proto-Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah, in the way that they would say it. So what Jesus did, and you bet, I bet you can see where this is going. Jesus took a quote from Isaiah 35, 1st Isaiah. And he took a quote from Isaiah 61, 2nd Isaiah. And he put them together. Let me read those to you. Let me read first Isaiah 35. This, I'm going to read a little more than he said. Let me read you the context. Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. That's what he quoted from in First Isaiah. And in that passage, among more that's there, you see the suffering servant being described and coming to, he says, save Israel. And then he quoted the next part from Second Isaiah. This is chapter 61, and I'll read that, 61.1. He says, the Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The word anointed there is Christ. Because the word has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. And you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. All right, that's the king's kingdom coming for Israel. So what did Jesus just say to John? He said, first of all, notice what I'm doing. Notice the miracles I'm doing. I'm fulfilling prophecies here. But did you notice which prophecies I'm fulfilling? I'm not just fulfilling some corner of the Bible or some backwater prophecy. I'm fulfilling prophecies from 1st Isaiah, the major prophet of the Old Testament. Oh, and by the way, I'm also fulfilling prophecies from 2nd Isaiah, the other side of the major prophet of the Old Testament. This is meat and potatoes teaching for any Jew of that day. I assure you, John and most any other man of that day would have memorized Isaiah. It was basic teaching. So what Jesus just said to this man through his, emissary, through his representatives is, I'm both. I'm both. I'm doing both the things the first Messiah does and the second Messiah will do. Now, can you be a little more encouraged now in that response? Because not only did we just see a great man of God confused about God's plan, which means we can be that way too and not worry too much. But now you can be even more encouraged to know that the answers that you need for that confusion are right in front of you. They've always been right in front of you. They were in front of John his whole life. And now that he's sitting in prison... Jesus didn't say to him, let me explain this to you. He just read scripture to him. But in the way that he did it, it made an impression, right? Why did John believe, by the way, that there were two messiahs? Think about that for a minute. Where would he have gotten that concept? 
Well, somebody told him that. Some rabbi taught him that. It was simply what was going around. It was the interpretation of the day. Or whatever else came along, he just lacked the perspective to get it right. Either way, the mistake was easy to make. And for that reason, it was also easy to correct. It was simply a matter of looking at the revelation of God in the right moment as the Lord gave it to him. Look, this is exciting for me as a Bible teacher because what it tells me is this. No matter how entrenched you are in a wrong idea, God can fix it like that. And he doesn't have any special need to do it through some wacky thing. He just has to show you the Bible the right way. If we don't look at the Bible with fresh eyes, though, if we're not willing to consider what's here in some new and better way, if we're so sure we already know it, well then, why does he need to teach us anything? I think that's where he leaves us. The time was right for God to reveal it to John. I like to imagine how John received this. If he's back in prison and his representatives came to him, and they said, this is what Jesus said for us to say, I imagine he heard Jesus' response in his head for a while. He just kind of ran it over in his head, pondering it. Until maybe he noticed that what he was hearing was stuff he remembered from Isaiah. And then he goes to the text and he says, wait a minute, these are prophecies of the first and then the second Messiah, and he's doing both of them, and aha, he's both Messiahs. And then the next thing John said was, how can that be? How can you be two Messiahs? Because even at that point, he doesn't know Jesus is going to die. He doesn't know he's going to resurrect. You see, even at that point, he probably didn't get the full picture. I think he didn't understand it probably until he died. Which is why Jesus adds, the one who does not take offense is the one who will be blessed. What he's saying is this, Jesus reassured John that I will not be universally accepted. That's not a problem. You don't need to solve that problem to believe that I am the Christ. You don't need to understand why people are rejecting me to believe my claims. You ever had that in scripture? Not that specific issue, but something like that? This happens a lot. People will say to me, until you solve this riddle for me, Steve, I can't believe this is true. And they've got it exactly backward, right? They've got it exactly backward. Like, they'll say, I can't understand how God can create the world in only six days, so until you tell me that's true and figure that out for me, I can't understand Genesis. I can't accept it on its face. And they've got it backwards, right? They've got it completely backwards. I can't understand how you could put all those animals in an ark, and until you explain that to me, I can't believe in Noah's flood. You've got it backwards. You believe in Noah's flood because it says so, and God will show you in time how those things came to pass. He doesn't do it the other way around. He doesn't condescend to our foolish ignorance. He doesn't condescend to our demands of proof. He says, you got it? You can believe it or not. If you believe it, I'll show you how it's true. If you want to know that you can trust it before you're willing to believe it, as the farmer says, you can't get there from here. And he will leave you in your ignorance. And there are a lot of Christians walking around denying basic truths that are self-evident on the page of Scripture and doing so simply because they don't like the idea of believing something they can't understand. It's God. Get used to it. If you can understand God to your own satisfaction, that ain't God. That's not God. That's your own invention of God. If God can be fully grasped by your finite mind, it's not God. And that's not necessary. It's not a requirement in order for us to understand what it says to understand all that it means. And what Jesus has just said to John is, I am both, and you don't understand perhaps why that's true right now, but my works prove my fulfillment of Scripture, that's enough. The word is said, I am, that's all you need. 
I think it probably was all John needed. I think he went to his death confident that he had seen the king. You know what happened after he died? He understood it. You know that? After he died, he understood it. And I want you to have that encouragement maybe more than anything else this evening out of this. That misunderstandings and confusion about spiritual truth within the body of Christ are totally expected. They are normal. They are a test of fellowship. They are a test of patience, of kindness and grace. We all hate to see it. We all strive to you know, get around disagreements, I know. But look, there's only so much we can do there. We're all dependent on the Lord's revelation. And some of us get a little more than someone else. Some of us learn it a little sooner than someone else. Maybe some of us are listening a little better than someone else. It's going to always be that way. But whatever the cause, when we leave this earth, whenever that day comes for all of us, we enter into the Lord's presence, and when we do, we leave ignorance behind. Paul says that when we come to know Christ plainly, as he knows us now plainly, we will see all things clearly. He says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. for now we see in a mirror dimly. And I don't like the way the, the NASB translates that, because the word dimly in, in Greek, it's the word enigma. And so what it should be is more like we see through a mirror obscured. Uh, you know, it, it, we know there's something behind there, but we just don't know what it is. And that's kind of how we feel about a lot of things in the Bible, right? We know there's something there. We can't quite see what it is. Paul says that's how it is. But then he says, but then when we see Christ face to face, he says, now I know in part, but I will fully know just as I have been fully known. That's your promise. If you're anxious to know everything this thing says, one day you will. One day you will. In the meantime, be encouraged. There are answers here. There have always been answers here. We devote ourselves to those answers and the Lord delights to reveal him in his timing. But the journey is the point. I know that term can get used sometimes in a very cynical way. I don't mean it that way. Truly, it is a journey when you try to understand the Bible. It's a process, right? It's not a day. It's not a week. It's not a seminary degree. It's a lifetime. And the journey is well worth your effort because as you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, good things happen for you. I want you to think one more time back to John. How do you think his outlook on life changed when he came to fully understand Jesus was both Messiah's God has fulfilled his plan? That there wasn't something missing, there wasn't something he had gotten wrong, he wasn't in danger. I have a feeling he went from doubt and worry to joy and contentment, even though he was in prison. He could probably face death a lot differently knowing the Lord had been faithful to his promises. So that even if John didn't understand the whole plan, he knew what he knew. And that gave him comfort. If you make a priority of studying, as we do in this church, not because you want to solve puzzles, not because you want to know more than your neighbor, not so that you can feel puffed up in it, but because you want to grow, then what God will do, I believe, is He will give you that growth because that's a delight for Him as well. That's what He wants also. And that growth won't simply be up here. As we like to say, When you study the Bible, when you teach the Bible, good things happen. And among those things, marriages are restored. Relationships improve. Personal finance will become godly. Marriage uh, relationships, children relationships, parent relationships will become godly. People will get rid of addictions. People will get rid of, of bad habits. People will change their personalities like you have never seen. Things happen. And not just because on the Bible it says, change your personality. No, but because in the saturation of God's Word, you become a different person over time. 
I've seen it happen. I know everyone in here has seen it if they've studied. And you can't explain it. You can't sit back and say, why did that change in your life, Steve? Well, because Ephesians 12 said blah, 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 blah. Well, there's no Ephesians 12, by the way. No, it's not that way. It's, it's because, you know, five years ago I used to do this and now I don't. And I don't really know when it changed. It just changed. God did the work. But you know what? He could have done it without the Bible, but he doesn't. That's what I'm trying to tell you. His desire is to move us through a study of his word so that we would grow closer to him and become more like him. And he rewards that devotion of time and effort in his word by changing you, which causes you to want more of the same. There's a saying, I think I've used it here before, that um, you know, consuming the, the bread of life can be compared to consuming real food, but they work in opposite ways. When you eat real food, you get full at some point, you don't want any more. But when you eat this, you just get hungrier. And if you stop eating food, you get hungrier until you're preoccupied with the need to eat. But if you stop studying this, you lose your appetite for it very fast. And that not knowing that means you've got to maintain a lifestyle that says, this is a part of who I am, like food is in my life. If you do that, God will change you in time. Which is why we call this church verse by verse and we do what we do. Because we believe that. And... John is a great example of someone who could be so mature, so used by God, so anointed for his ministry, and yet still miss things. And even then, God comes up and says, let me teach you something. Because he wanted him to grow. Even in the last hours of his life, he wanted him to grow. That's what I want you guys to remember tonight. When you walk out of here and you come back whenever you do, just remember that we're not studying this thing so we can be proud of what we know. We're studying this so we can grow to be like Christ. And it, it, will, it will happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grow us all, teach us all, and Father, give us patience for that person sitting next to us that doesn't know as much as we do. Or at least that's what we think sometimes, Father. And Forgive us for our arrogance at times when we do think like that, and forgive us, Father, for our laziness when we don't pursue you enough. But Father, thank you for pursuing us, and thank you for your word being ever-present being declared publicly, being available privately. And thank you, Father, for the wisdom that it offers us even into the last hours of our life so that we may have comfort until we see you face to face and know it in full. Thank you, Father, for this lesson and for weeks to come in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.